All right, I have been late every time I have talked for like six months now, so my goal is to try to get done. Yeah, all right, okay, good. My goal is to keep it going. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, my goal is to try to wrap up on time, so I'll need your help. Are you guys ready? Okay, good. Um, we are wrapping up Genesis, which means we're also wrapping up the life of Joseph. But Joseph really is this capstone to this entire mini-narrative about the, mini, the, the family of God, like God's setting up the narrative of the scriptures, Exodus through Revelation, and Genesis kind of serves as all of the stage setup. So Genesis 1 through 11 was this preface, and then we got introduced to this family of God. And Avraham and Yitzhak, they kind of brought like the basic tenets and the basic principles, like God built his family on this, on, on hospitality and trust and self-sacrifice and then we also see in Jacob and Joseph, we see this chutzpah and this passion and this fire and everything kind of falls apart, but then we all see it come back together in Joseph. And that's, that's what we're kind of wrapping up here today. Now, a handful of weeks ago, the last time I was here, we were wrapping up the life of Jacob. And we kind of broke the rules because our passage was supposed to be in like Genesis 35, 34, 35, 36, and we kind of like jumped forward a little bit and pulled some material from Genesis 48 because we wanted to kind of see Jacob's big story. And the big thing that Jacob seems to learn is at, kind of at the last moment in his life, the pieces come together that this isn't about him. And in fact, this is about something like, I'm so glad for this sermon series on Genesis. I, I've actually, Marty's learning new things. Yeah. I hope, always, I have learned like a whole new appreciation for Jacob. Like in a, in a lot, there's a lot of heroes of this story, but in a lot of ways, Jacob saves this thing. It might take him his whole life, but Jacob saves this thing. Um, and we're going to look at that today. I'm not going to go back to that same passage we used Genesis 48, but I want to start by going back to the few verses that precede that conversation. So this is kind of Jacob's deathbed moment, and we already looked at the bulk of the conversation about Ephraim and Manasseh and adopting these kind of half-Egyptian sons into his family. We looked at that. Now I want to, to look at the verses that just precede it, because Jacob says something that I think is important, Okay, so let's, let's look at this, Genesis 47. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years. The years of his life were 147. That's old. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Yosef and said to him, if I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh, there it is again, uh, and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not... Bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. So Jacob, end of his life, calls Joseph to his side, says, Joseph, if you have any warmth in your heart for me, make me one promise. Promise me you won't bury me in Egypt. And you're like, golly, what's the big, what's the big deal? You're going to be dead. Like, who cares? <laughs> I've often told people, like, when I die, like, I'll be dead, so I don't really care what you do. Um, so nobody, are you guys okay this morning? 
<laughs> I wasn't being real serious with that. It was okay to laugh at that. Um, but there's, so what's going on here with like, why is, Jacob is trying to make this statement to Joseph. Egypt is nice, but let's just stop right there. Let's take a little side, little PS, which is why I keep going long on my sermons, by the way. But let, we don't often, if you've grown up in the church and grown up studying the Bible, we don't often give this impression of the story of Egypt. Like when we think Egypt, we think pyramids and desert and plagues and babies thrown in the Nile and bad pharaohs and icky Egypt, right? Icky, that's the Hebrew word. So, so that's what we typically think of. What we, what we don't often spend any time on is when they, that's not what Egypt was like when they got there. They live in the land of Goshen. So it was years ago, National Geographic did a, a cover article on uh, the greatest topsoils on the face of planet Earth, okay? Uh, a room full of farmers are gonna know a whole lot more about this than me. Don't make fun of me. Anyway, uh, so they did the top, I think there was a top 10 actually, but I'll talk about the top three. Number three and number two were right here in the United States. Whole planet, best topsoils, two of them are right here in our good old US of A. And uh, the, the number three was in the Great Plains of kind of Iowa, Nebraska. Yeah, I guess. Just kidding, just kidding. Corn. My wife's from there. I've traveled there once. <laughs> uh, just corn, corn. What, I said, what's that? They said Kansas. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> So, so, there, so there's number three, okay, six feet of topsoil, okay? They did like a cutaway. They took a big piece of, of land and they did a cutaway so you could see the topsoil, if that makes any sense, right, okay? Uh, number two, you're sitting in it, Pacific Northwest, yeah, woo, okay? Four to six feet of topsoil, but the thing that makes it so great here is it's mineral rich because of the volcanic activity here. Again, I don't know anything about anything, but that's what I've been told by National Geographic. Nevertheless, that is number two. And number two cannot hold a candle to number one. We got nothing on number one. Number one is the biblical land of Goshen. Like, have you, you probably have never been taught that unless you've studied Egypt or anything. Like, when they first went to Egypt, Pharaoh gives them the land that floods every year, a hundred feet of farmable topsoil. They couldn't even get it in the cutaway. Like they had this huge piece of land. They couldn't even get it in the, it was all topsoil. Because for thousands upon thousands of years, this Nile has been flooding and just building up this rich topsoil. Now, when they get to Egypt, Pharaoh gives them that piece of land because the Egyptians like to live in houses, which doesn't work well when it floods every year. This is why, by the way, everybody keeps going down to where when there's a famine. Egypt, because the Nile always floods, there's always food and great agriculture there. No matter how bad the drought is, at least you have the Nile. So everybody goes to Egypt, right? Okay. Egypt can't build their houses in that land, but the Israelites live in tents. It's easy for them to pick up their way of life, move, go work for Pharaoh for two to three months out of the year, and then just come back and settle. They can graze their flocks. They can take care of They have it. You could go there today. It would blow your mind if you went there today. You can stand with your left foot in waist-high barley just 
green and luscious as far as you can see. Unbelievable, like you've never even imagined. And your right foot can be standing in desert where there's not a plant anywhere that direction. They were living in a land. The Egyptian dream was thriving in the land of Goshen. Nobody laughed at that, but that'll, that'll be funny later, I hope. Okay, so that they, so when Jacob says to Joseph, Joseph and his family are not miserable in Egypt. Oh, Egypt with its pyramids and its slavery. No, 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 no. They have it good. And Jacob looks at Joseph and says, Joseph, do not bury me in Egypt. Because this is not where our story lies. Our story lies in Canaan. Okay? Now watch what Joseph says. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. <laughs> Jacob's serious about this. Jacob, if you just make me one promise. Promise me you won't bury me in Egypt. Yeah, Dad, I won't bury you in Egypt. No, no, no. Swear to me. Hand under my thigh, everything. Okay? I want an oath. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshiped as he leaned on top of his staff. Some of your translations might say, knelt down at the head of the bed. That's a Hebrew idiom, a figure of speech that means to pass the mantle of leadership on to the next person in line. So this is Jacob's way of, once he's convinced that Joseph's not going to bury him in Egypt, he says, okay, Joseph, then the family is yours, because I'm on my way to my death. So now it's your family to run. All right? Now, what Jacob is really doing is he's calling into Joseph's life a tension that has been there throughout the whole story. So if we were to go back and summarize the Joseph story, there's a pattern that becomes very important. And I'm going to try to summarize it so I don't preach for an hour. But Joseph's story begins with these dreams and his dad Here's these dreams. His dad gives him a coat and gives him a prominent position in the family. Does that make sense? Dreams, coat, prominent position. Okay? The, the next stories in Joseph's life, that pattern is undone. Okay? So he had dreams, coat, prominent position, and then he goes out to his brothers, and it's dreams, coat ripped off his back, thrown into a pit. Right? Then he's taken to Potiphar's house, where Potiphar's wife is like, I got some dreams. I mean, that's a paraphrase, but if you know the context of the story. <laughs> okay? And then, and then she rips the coat off of him, and he gets thrown in a pit. Okay? Everything is, everything is being undone. And then as he sits in the bottom of the pit, Pharaoh comes along, and what does Pharaoh, what, what's the pattern? I have a bunch of dreams... Joseph interprets the dreams. Pharaoh gives him a coat and a prominent position in Egypt. Pharaoh is becoming Joseph's new father. Pharaoh is, is playing the role that only Jacob has played in Joseph's life. Which is important because as Aaron pointed out last week, in the last few weeks, when you and I read Genesis, we get all the backstory, but Joseph doesn't. So when we read Genesis, we know that Joseph gets thrown in a cistern, the brothers take the coat, and what do they do? 
They dip it in blood. They give it to Jacob. And Jacob goes, oh, no, Joseph has died. Joseph doesn't know any of that. So if you're Joseph sitting in the cistern, what are you thinking? Well, my dad's going to come get me. My dad and I are like this. Like, my dad will come get me. And then you get carted off to Egypt. Well, I'm sure my dad will come find me. And then you're in Potiphar's house, and now you're in a dungeon. And eventually you think, my dad's not coming for me. My dad gave up on me. Or maybe even my dad was in on it. But, but my dad, like, forget that story. And so when Pharaoh comes along, and by the way, this is not the Pharaoh of Exodus. This Pharaoh is a pretty good guy. The Pharaoh of Exodus is a jerk. The Pharaoh of Genesis is pretty good. Not pretty good, he's good. He's benevolent, he's generous, he brings shalom to other people's chaos. Search Genesis, you're not gonna find Pharaoh of Genesis doing anything like unethical or immoral. The Pharaoh of Genesis is good. It's not like he's this evil, like, <laughs> I don't know why I just thought of like the villain in uh, Dora the Explorer. <laughs> I don't know why. My, my children let me watch that show, so I don't even know why that came to mind. But like we picture like this evil Pharaoh, like I'll be your father. No, like <laughs> there's no Darth Vader moment. He's just, he's stepping into this role, which is all well and good until the moment of last week's story. And then in last week's story, Joseph all of a sudden realizes the truth. My dad didn't give up on me. He wasn't in on it. He thought I was dead. And now all of a sudden you have these two fathers. Who's my real father? Is it the Jacob, land of Canaan, calling of God, or is it the Paro, king of Egypt, provision during the famine? Which, and so I'm gonna go back to a passage we read last week, but let's go to Genesis 44. This was Judah. Now remember, Judah, Judah was the guy that orchestrated Joseph's whole horrible story. And so when the brothers finally all get down there, Joseph orchestrates the whole silver cup in the sack so he can keep his true brother, Benjamin, the only other son of who? Rachel, his true brother. He's gonna keep him down in Egypt. Let those other brothers go back. Those lousy brothers. Let them go back to Jacob and you just stay here with me. I'm sure he's thinking, I'll tell Benjamin later who I am and we'll just let these other brothers get out of here. And Judah, out of nowhere, says this. So now if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with this boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. This, this is Judah saying, I'll take his place. And I'm sure Joseph is thinking, you're gonna what? This is the brother you don't like, the other brother of Rachel. Like, you're, gonna, you're going to What? Now, what you need to know before we go to the next, actually, let's go to the next slide. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? 
No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Now, you need to know a few Hebrew words here in order to let this slide and everything else sink in. The word, there's something going on in the audible as you hear it in the Hebrew. The word for father in the Hebrew is av. Say av. Okay, av. We've said, we talked about that one before. The word for evil or misery is the word ra. Say ra. Which, by the way, has all kinds of fun implications, thinking of the Egyptian story and the god Ra. But nevertheless, Ra is evil and misery. Now, the word for famine, which this whole story is about a famine, right? Famine here, famine, 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 okay? The word for famine in the Hebrew is Ra'av. Say Ra'av. Ra'av. Now, etymologically, it's not connected at all. It's not like famine is a combination of the two words. Etymologically, there's no connection. But audibly, realize that this entire narrative of Joseph is about avs, 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 ra, av, ra, av, ra, av, ra, av, ra, av, av, ra, ra, av, ah. Like, you don't hear that as you read it, but this is sticking out to the Hebrew reader. This whole story is about fathers. And who is the Ra of? Who's the real father of misery? Who's the real evil father? This is, now watch, when he says this, let's, let's, how can I go back to my Av if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the Ra that would come on my Av. Now let's go to the next slide. Watch Joseph's reaction to that. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. This whole discussion about what his father knew and this newfound tension between I thought I knew who my father was, and now I'm having to rethink everything about who my dad was. And he totally breaks down because this is the tension in his life. Who is going to be his true father? And it's going to come to, it's going to be a tension, but there's going to come a point in the story where he has to choose. So let's go to where they bury Jacob. This is the part of Genesis that everybody thinks, a big funeral, who cares? Actually, there's a ton of good stuff in here. Let's read it. This is Jacob's literal final words. Then he gave them these instructions. I am about to be gathered to my people. Look at what's on his mind. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre in Canaan where Avraham Ba, along with the field, is a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. There Avraham and his wife Sarah was buried. There Yitzhak and his wife Rivka were buried. There I buried Leah. Whoa. I'm probably the only one that finds this moving and profound. But who was the wife that he spent his whole life pining over? Do you realize what he's saying here at the end of his life? His whole life, 99% of Jacob's life, I'll tell you where he would have wanted to be buried. Bury me with who? Who cares about that other stuff? But now he gets it. And he says, don't, 
bury me with my father and my grandfather, and that's where I buried. That is the story I'm a part of. I'm a part of something bigger than just my own desires. Ah, I find that so moving. Like, look at the change that's happened in Jacob in the last chapter. Okay, the field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Let's go to the next one. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. And then Joseph directed the physicians in his, okay, wait, what? Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. Who embalms? Do the Israelites embalm? Who embalms? What's going on here? I thought Joseph agreed not to bury him in Egypt. Why is at Joseph's direction, they're embalming Jacob? Couple different options here. My personal favorite, I think Joseph is struggling here. I think Joseph is saying, I'm not sure I'm willing to give up my Egypt for your Canaan. It could be, I think the rabbis would want to teach that Joseph is being intentional here. There's something he's up to because he's trying to engage the Egyptians in something. So let's see how the story continues. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for the embalming. And the Egyptians mourned him for 70 days. 70 days they give him. Listen, you don't embalm everybody in Egypt. You embalm who? Pharaohs, royalty, really high officials. They are pulling out all the stops for this Jacob character. 70 days, public pomp and circumstance of mourning for Jacob. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, uh, this is a really odd time to bring this up. Like if I'm Joseph, I don't wait until after 70 days of embalming and mourning, right about the time you're about ready to build a pyramid, I don't know that, right about the time you're about ready to bury Jacob and then be like, oh, excuse me, uh, I actually made a promise to my father. This is a really bad time. Tell Pharaoh that before he spends all of this pomp and circumstance. Like, what is Joseph doing? Either he's up to something intentional, or he's finally come, I, I think, after 70 days of mourning, I think he's had a lot of time to think about his dad. I think he's had a lot of time to think about his father's legacy. And I think after 70 days of mourning, Joseph goes... I made a promise, and I'm going to do the right thing. So he goes to Pharaoh. He says, if I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. I wonder how that request is going to go, right? Let's go to the next slide. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father, and he may, as he made you swear to do. We'll keep moving. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All, all Pharaoh's officials accompanied him. The dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen went up with him. Does this sound familiar? Are there going to be any other stories where a pharaoh leaves Egypt with chariots and horsemen? Anyway, it was very, uh, wink, wink, wink. Okay, 
there was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Yosef observed a seven-day period of mourning. That's a Hebrew period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians, listen to that, the pomp and circumstance was so big, who did they think was throwing the funeral? The Egyptians. The Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why the place near the Yarden is called Avel Misraim. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre, which Avraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. Now watch what his brothers do. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back all the wrongs we did to him? I love this story. It's so real life. Like it's not like they bury Jacob and the violins swell and then everybody's like slapping everybody on the back and giving each other high fives as the credits begin to roll. This is so like real life. They bury Jacob and the sons freak out. Like what if Joseph plots revenge? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. They're lying. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. <laughs> I like that. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of God of your father. When the message came to him, Joseph wept. I was like, are you kidding me? Let's keep going. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't, listen to what he says. He's been so wronged by this group. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it uh, for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I wonder what he means by the saving of many lives. Are physical lives being saved here in this moment? I wonder if he's talking about something even bigger. Let's keep going. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. No, I'm probably not going to get done on time, but I do want to try. So we're going to send our servers back. We got some, excuse me, implications to work through. But if our servers want to go back and begin serving the bread and the juice for our time of communion, if you're visiting with us, when we come to the Eucharist table, the Lord's Supper, we have an open table. So if you want to join us in celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you're family and you need to, to join us for that. Just hold on to the bread and the juice and we'll take it all together here in just a moment. Now I got a few implications that I may get a little wound up on, but I'll try not to. First implication, God's plan will always be a better investment and will always be available to you no matter how twisted and convoluted your decisions have been. And I know that this, man, this has been a broken record in Genesis, hasn't it? Like we just, got, like every week, Aaron, Paul, and Sermon, like the teaching team, we all gotta figure out like how to reword the same implication which is essentially like it's never too late. You're never too screwed up, no matter what you've done. Th this must be important. Like God really wants to communicate this to you. And I know that it's important because of all the conversations I've had with other people over the course of 15 years of ministry. Oh, we are so convinced 
that our story is the one that can't be redeemed. Guys, it's not true. It doesn't matter like, well, I've just blown it for 20 years. God never revoked his invitation. It's still there for you. Well, I rebelled against the invitation. God, God like, put all these things in my life and I threw it all. Yes, and God, God never revoked his invitation to you. And his calling on your life never changed. God doesn't look at how many mistakes you've made and how screwed up you got and go, oh boy, I better change what I'm doing in their life. Whatever God made you to do, it's always what God made you to do, no matter the path you took to get there and no matter how screwed up you made it, whether you meant to or not. The calling on your life never changes. God's plan will always be a better investment and will always be available to you no matter how twisted and how convoluted your decisions have been. That's God's part. What about their part? Next implication. Others will often be scared of where the plan of God will lead us. Think of the brothers of Joseph. Like God's plan starts to come together and they're like, what if Joseph comes after us? When God starts to move, people will often be scared because where God is leading us is often dangerous. It's often uncomfortable. So people are often gonna not see it correctly and not respond the way they ought to. Listen, let Joseph be our guide here. Forgive them. Call them to take courage. What does Joseph say to his brothers? Essentially, get off the floor. They threw themselves at his feet. We're your slaves. Joseph is like, get up. That's not what God's doing here. It's not what God's doing here. There will be all kinds of people that won't understand what God's doing in your life, their life, our lives, the world around us. Maybe we know, maybe we're totally missing it. Forgive them. Call them to take courage and learn how to lead. This is the kind of leadership that matters. I don't care whether you think you're a leader or not. These are the moments when you get to lead your family, lead your children, lead your spouses, lead your coworkers, lead your fellow parishioners and the people you worship next to. When God is on the move and people are afraid and you get to, and God gives you a glimpse and you get to say, don't be afraid because this is what God is doing. All right, third implication. These are gonna start to get a little harder more difficult. There will often be two narratives that seek to father our future. There will often be a narrative. There's going to be three words in the next implication that I'm really going to drum on. Comfort, privilege, control. This is the great idolatry of the evangelical church. Comfort, privilege, control. Okay, we'll get there in just a moment. There will often be a father a narrative that wants to father your future. And it will often have blinking lights that say, go this way and everything will go well. You'll find comfort. You'll find places of privilege and you can control the outcome. It's a lie. Don't go that way. Well, maybe the two paths are the same. Not very often. <laughs> and that is, again, how we try to manage our idolatry. It's the same thing the Israelites did. Maybe we can worship Adonai and Baal at the same time. I see this in college students all the time. 
Two paths lie before them, and their believing parents and their church family goes, take the one that's safe. Stop it. Take the one that's godly. Over and over and over again, there will be two narratives that seek to father your future. One that will say, it's all going to go great for you, and another one that says, you can actually make it great for others. Make that one the one you choose. Choose that father. Don't bury me in Egypt. Egypt is great. It's got waist-high barley. But Joseph, look me in the eyeballs. I've got to tell you something. Joseph, look at me. There will come a day when you have to choose. American Christian evangelicalism, look at me. I think the day's already come, but nevertheless, I'll let you argue with me. I'm not sure we've made the right decision. There will come a day when you have to choose between your Jesus and your paro. Choose Jesus. Last implication. Uh-oh, I'm getting more worked up than I did first service. <laughs> know that your truest self, know that your truest self, yours and yours and yours and yours and every single one of you here today, your truest self and your most accurate identity, who God made you to be, is found in the calling that demonstrates the character of God. Listen to me. Joseph could have chosen Egypt, and I don't think he would have been immoral to do so. But nor would he have seized the calling that demonstrated the character of God to the world. Do not find your identity in the calling that leads to comfort, privilege, and control. We will sell our Jesus out over and over and over again to maintain comfort, privilege, and control. The three idols that we love. It gets into our theology. It gets into our churches. It gets into our, our marriages. It gets into our parenting. Oh my goodness. We'll do anything we can to maintain comfort, privilege, and control. If you really want to be challenged today, like I can only imagine like all the marriages in the room that might have struggles or frustrations or whatever. Think about these three words, comfort, privilege, control, and tell me it doesn't lie at the heart of whatever it is you're struggling with. I want control. I want comfort. I want the privilege. The way of Jesus says comfort, forget it, because my way is dangerous and uncomfortable. The way of Jesus says, privilege, give it away for other people. The way of Jesus says, control, it's a lie. The only one that has control is God himself. So anything that tells you you can have it, forget it. It's a bad father. It is a ra'av. And quite frankly, it's a ra'av. It may not be today, but it will be someday. Now, I'm so late. I love the last service of the day, and second service usually isn't, so. Ha! Here's my problem. My problem is, is I'm guilty of bowing down to those three idols over and over and over again. Now, luckily, luckily I can come here, and I can put the bread and the juice in my hands, and I can be reminded, hey, Tom, can you put our first implication up there? I can be reminded of this. 
God's plan will always be a better investment and will always be available. I have bowed down to the idols of comfort, privilege, and control far too often in my life, but God's invitation still stands. Lay it down. Listen to me. I have sold out my Jesus over and over and over again in my marriage. I sell out my Jesus in the way I parent my kids far too often. I have sold out my Jesus when it comes to making decisions about my job because I'm too worried about comfort and control and privilege. I do it over and over and over again. And God looks at me and you just as he looked at Peter and he says, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? I know you denied me three times. Do you love me? That's all that matters. Feed my sheep. You don't have to fix anything before you can feed my sheep. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. It's always available. It's always available. And this is my reminder and my chance to come and confess. That night, Jesus took a piece of bread. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember the forgiveness, the steadfast love, the faithfulness of Jesus. And then later in the meal, he took a cup passed it to his disciples. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus. Father God, I confess the many different ways that um, I, I choose the wrong narrative. I, God, I know how many times when I've looked for a hero, uh, when I've thought about the person I want to be in my life, it's looked far more like the Pharaoh of Genesis than it has the Joseph of your family story. God, I feel like there are far too many times in my life where I'm, I'm directing the officials to begin the embalming process because that's where I want to stay. God, I pray that you would remind me, but that you would remind every other person in this room, it's never too late, even after the entire process is done, the embalming is ready, it's never too late to turn around and say, my story lies in Canaan. God, I pray you would, you would remind us that our story lies in Canaan. I pray that you would speak truth into our life. Speak truth into our life. Tell us the things that are most true about us. And teach us how to identify the lie and push it aside. So God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week as we conclude our teaching series on the book of Genesis. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, liferotp.com.